This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we'll be looking this morning at verses 34 through 43. Peter has been summoned by the centurion Cornelius to meet with him and others gathered in his house. And so Peter arrives and In verse 33, uh, Cornelius welcomes him, acknowledges his kindness in coming, and says, Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so we begin in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We give thanks to the Lord for his holy word. Let us pray together. Father, we do pray for your help as we study this passage of the scriptures today. Father, we pray that you would inform our minds, you stir up our hearts to worship you, even in the study, even in the contemplation of your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. He said that's one small step for a man and one giant leap for mankind. So we've read this passage before us. It's really one small step to read a paragraph or two or even perhaps to have been present for those who were there on that occasion. And yet this occurrence, this event about which we just read in this passage is one of the most pivotal one of the most most earth-changing turning points in human history. Because for the first time, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached purposefully and deliberately to Gentiles. Up until this point, the gospel was contained among the the Jews of Jesus' day in Israel, in Jerusalem. And in fact, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know the events that led up to this. That the Lord came to Peter, he gave Peter a vision as Peter was on the roof praying, and a sheet was let down with all kinds of animals in it, clean, unclean animals. And the Lord said, Peter, eat. And Peter shrank back and said, no, Lord, I'm a good Jew. I keep a kosher kitchen. I don't eat unclean animals. The Lord said, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And this happened again. And, and Peter got the point, the message. And then the, even during that, the messengers come from Cornelius and say, our master has sent us to ask you to come to him. And the Lord has asked him to send for you to come and tell him what the Lord has put on your heart. And so that's what we've read about. Peter went with him. He travels goes into a Gentile home. Typically, a Jew would not do that. Uh, And that's what he says when he meets with them. Uh, He comes and says to them, uh, God has shown me, this is verse 28, that I should not call any person common or unclean. Because the vision of the animals certainly had to do with food, but the point was larger. The point had to do with people. Because... While Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, it was Peter who really first broke that barrier at God's command that it wasn't just the animals, it was the Gentiles. A huge stumbling block for the Jews, great animosity, long-standing antipathy between Jew and Gentile. And yet Peter says, the Lord's shown me that I'm not to call you Gentiles unclean. And in fact, preaches the gospel to them. And beyond our passage, they respond, they believe, and they begin to speak in tongues. The evidence of the Holy Spirit as it came on Pentecost, kind of an echo of Pentecost here, convincing Peter that these, like his fellow Jewish believers, are now part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter baptizes them. He says, why shouldn't I? What's to keep them from being baptized? And he does. Of course, he reports back to the Jewish leaders. They have questions about this. And Peter explains what, ha- what, hap- what had happened. And they acknowledge that, yes, the Lord has brought Gentile believers into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this truly is an astonishing event, a, a turning point in human history. And it, it, you know also in the book of Acts, it wasn't long before the Gentile believers began to rival the Jewish believers and then to exceed the Jewish believers in number. And Acts chapter 15 is the council of the church. How to incorporate now these Gentile believers with all of their pagan backgrounds coming into the church. How is that to happen? Well, that's outside the scope of our sermon. What we do want to look at today is Peter's situation here uh, in preaching the gospel to them and what it was that he said. Now, think about Peter's situation. He had, in effect, what was a tabula rasa, a blank slate, a fresh start. Now, Cornelius was a God-fearer. Cornelius was familiar with Jewish teachings, although he had not fully converted to Judaism. But these were people who said, the Lord asked you to come to us. Now, what is it you have to say? Well, if you were Peter, what would you say? 
If you had the opportunity to speak to people and say, we want to know what it is you believe. We want to know what the Lord would have you say to us. What would you say to them? Well, look at what Peter says here. Uh, it reminds me of um, a story that's told about uh, a former pastor of my home church, Dr. McIntosh. Dr. McIntosh served the church for 35 years, from 1920 to 1955. That church has a long memory, and I knew Dr. McIntosh like he was still the pastor of the church. In fact, I think some of the people thought maybe he was, but he'd been gone a long time by the time I was on the scene. But the story is told of Dr. Mack that his assistant, who was preparing the bulletin, uh, kept asking him as the week uh, moved on towards Sunday, what was he preaching about? He needed to put a sermon text and title in the bulletin, and he asked him, what are you preaching about? And Eventually, Dr. McIntosh, in an uncharacteristic, uh, with an uncharacteristic edge of irritability in his voice, said, I'm going to preach about Jesus, and I'm going to preach about 20 minutes. Well, Peter preached about Jesus. I suspect he preached somewhat longer than 20 minutes, however, but he preached about Jesus. And particularly, he, there were three significant, three foundational truths about Jesus that he spoke about. What would you say to people about Jesus? Well, let's look in, at what Peter did. Uh, three truths about Jesus, and then fourth, uh, an implication of that, that he adds on as well at the end. So let's look at those things now, these truths. First place, he told the people about Jesus' life in very simple, very concise terms. Now remember, he's talking to people who don't have any background in terms of who Jesus is. So what does he say? Well, let's look at this. In verse uh, 36 and following, he says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, God sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. They heard about these things, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we're witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So he gives just some basic elements of Jesus' life. Now, Jesus' life is important. We talk about what well, Jesus died for my sins. That's true. But Jesus also had to live for my salvation. Jesus had to... Uh, as Galatians says, be born under the law. Jesus was the second Adam, and he obeyed God's law for us where the first Adam did not. And so it was necessary for Jesus to live, to live under the law, tempted and yet obedient in every way to the command of God. Why? Because in doing that, Jesus was living out, he was creating a righteousness that you and I don't have. Yes, we needed our sins paid for, but we also needed righteousness. We needed obedience to the law. You and I haven't done that, but Jesus did. Now, three particular aspects of Jesus' life that he mentions. First, the beginning of his ministry with his baptism and the, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon him. Focuses on that, the beginning, the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. And you may recall how Jesus came to John the Baptist John's baptism was essentially an Old Testament ritual of purification, uh, an expression of repentance for one's sins. 
And when Jesus comes to John to be baptized, John, John balks at that. He says, no, why should I baptize you, Jesus? You're sinless. You have no sin. To be baptized would be an admission of guilt. And Jesus says to, to John, no, we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus' purpose in coming was to identify with his people, to identify with sinners. And so in undergoing that baptism, he wasn't acknowledging any sin on his own part, but he was identifying with sinners in our need of cleansing, taking our sins upon himself in a sense, metaphorically, even there at the baptism as he would literally at the cross. And at that point, you know, the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus in the form of something like a dove. Why does Jesus need the Holy Spirit? He's God, God incarnate. Well, yes, but Jesus also lived out his life in this world as a human being. He was God, but he was also fully man. And in his body, in his human nature, Jesus lived in obedience to his Father uh, with the very same resources that you and I do, and that is by the power of the Holy Spirit together with the Word of God. And Jesus relied on those resources. Jesus prayed to his Father, just as you or I would pray to God as our Heavenly Father. And so the first element of Jesus' life was his baptism, but then he moves in the inauguration of his public ministry, the Holy Spirit coming upon him. And then he mentions the works, the the things that he did uh, with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter focuses here on the element of the kingdom. Now, we, we talked, uh, what was it, last week in our study of the Lord's Prayer about thy kingdom come. And when Jesus' ministry began, he said the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. It's at hand. It has come. And the evidence of that was the works that Jesus did, the miracles, the casting out of demons, the healing of sickness. And the scriptures do make a distinction between those two, by the way. Uh, of, of physical illness and possession by demons and demonic activity. But the point of all of that was that the, the ministry of Jesus was pushing back, it was rolling back the effects of the fall, the effects, the misery, the pain that sin brings in the world, the works of Satan, the, the territory of Satan being pushed back as the kingdom moves forward. And so he refers to those things, And then kind of as a footnote to that, verse 39, and we're witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Because he knows the tendency. Did did all those things really happen? Did all those miracles really occur that we heard about? And Peter says, yes. Because we are witnesses. We saw these things of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews, out in the countryside, and in the city of Jerusalem. We witnessed with our own eyes these things that happened, which was one of the qualifications we learn in Acts 1 for an apostle. They had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ. Now, here he's saying that they witnessed all of these, these other events as well. So, first thing he does is focus on the life of Jesus. He's talking to people, again, who'd heard some things, but he, he fills in some of the details. The beginning of his ministry, the power, the works, the things that happened. Yes, and those things did happen. We witnessed them. We saw them. There's a second fundamental truth that he goes on to talk uh, to them about with Jesus, and that is his death. Now, it's curious here that Peter doesn't say more about the death of Jesus than he does. 
He says far more about the life of Jesus than he does his death. And in fact, all he says is, the end of verse 39, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. They, being the, the Jews in Jerusalem, that the thought follows is mentioning Jerusalem, they, those who were in Jerusalem, put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Now, that may spark your curiosity a little bit. Well, wasn't Jesus crucified? Well, yes, he was. Well, then why does Peter say he hanged on a tree? Well, the image there is significant. Peter certainly didn't have to put it that way. Peter knew how Jesus died. But there's Old Testament significance in putting it the way that he did. Uh, the, it's actually stated in Deuteronomy that uh, if someone was executed, the body was to be removed by nightfall, didn't want to bring a curse on the land because anyone who hangs on the tree is cursed. Now, Paul also takes up this language in Galatians 3 to explain the significance of Christ's death. Uh, what he says in Galatians 3.13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written quoting here from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul is saying here that when Jesus died, well, first of all, in our sins, we are in a cursed condition. We are under the curse of God. We're under the wrath of God because we've rebelled against him. We've broken his laws. But then Jesus takes that curse to himself bearing the sins of all who would believe in his body as he died on the cross. So he himself becomes an accursed thing in the sight of God. The substitute, bearing the sins of all who would believe in him. And died for those sins under the judgment, under the curse of God. And so here, uh, in other places, Acts chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 30, uh, for instance, uh, Various writers in the New Testament refer to Jesus dying on a tree because it brings out that element of the cursedness of his death, of his bearing the curse of his sinful people. And so that's why Peter refers to it the way that he does. There's a great deal of theology tied up just in that one image, and so it's a very shorthand way of saying a great deal about Jesus' death and why he died. But the scriptures elaborate on that in other places like Galatians 3, book of Romans, that explain that Jesus died as the sin-bearer. He died as the substitute, uh, bearing the wrath of God and dying for all who would put their faith in him. So he mentions the life of Jesus. As he's talking to them, he briefly, but in a very packed way, refers to the death of Jesus. And then he, he comes to the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 40. But God raised him on the third day, and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And so here he refers to his resurrection. First, that God raised him on the third day. Now, they used to puzzle me as a child, but uh, why it was that Jesus uh, rose on Sunday, first day of the week. And you think, well, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, third day, Monday, should it should have risen on Monday. Well, I'm reckoning on a Roman system and in our modern system, but on our Jewish reckoning, 
they, t- they, they counted the days inclusively. Friday, the day died, Saturday, and then Sunday would inclusively be the third day. He was dead on Friday, he was dead on Saturday, he was dead uh, until Sunday when he rose on the third day. And so Peter refers to God's raising him on the third day and also to his appearances. Now, if you read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read about the resurrection appearances of Christ. Um, The Apostle Paul comments on that in uh, another well-known Easter passage, 1 Corinthians 15, about the appearances of Christ. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter's Aramaic name, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so Paul's speaking about the appearances of Christ. It's interesting the way Peter puts it here. He didn't appear to everybody. It wasn't as though he showed up you know, in downtown Jerusalem. But there were plenty of people who saw him, who ate with him. Uh, Paul says more than 500. We don't want to be misled by what Peter says here to think there was just a small cadre of people who said, well, he appeared to us. There was actually quite a, quite a large number when it's finally all tallied up of those who saw Jesus after his death and uh, were therefore witnesses to his resurrection. Well, that brings us to verse 41. He says, those who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, you're probably all familiar with the Jesus ossuary, the bone box that was recently publicized, though not discovered. It was discovered some years ago. It's nothing new, really, by James Cameron and his film and so forth. And you think, ah, well, you know, skeptics, see, they've, they've got the bones there. Well, it may uh, intrigue you to know that the very first people to doubt, the very first people to be skeptical about the resurrection were Jesus' own disciples. As we read earlier in Luke 24, the women came, they said, we've gone to the tomb, it's empty, he's not there. And they were thinking, these women, you know, they probably went to the wrong place. You know, they, they no doubt stopped and asked for directions and got misled. Um, Luke says, it seemed to them like idle Tales. They didn't believe it. And so typically they had to go see for themselves, and they did. They went uh, and discovered it was, in fact, exactly as the women had said, uh, a scenario which has been repeated through the years up until the present day. But the point was, they know and they knew that dead people don't come out of the grave. And they saw Jesus die. They saw the blood, they knew very well that the Romans knew how to put someone to death and knew very well how to determine they were, in fact, dead. And so, of course, they were skeptical. Who wouldn't be? Because even in Bible times, people weren't just always popping out of the grave. People weren't just coming back to life all the time. Sometimes it might get that impression because it's a vast history compressed 
Whereas, in fact, that sort of thing didn't happen every day, as you might get the impression. They knew that. Dead people don't come back. And so they went, and indeed the tomb was, in fact, empty. And so they are witnesses to that as well. Now, their doubt was there. They were afraid when Jesus died. But when they saw the empty tomb, and then in Acts 2, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, They were changed. They were transformed. They were willing to undergo discomfort, suffering, affliction, and even death itself to make known a message uh, that they realized was true. If this had been false, if this had been a lie, why on earth? would they give their lives and their time and their energy for one who had so badly deceived them? Well, you can study the, uh, the, the box and all of that. Even non-believers are quite skeptical about the box. There's all kinds of reasons not to think that that in any way has to do with Jesus of Scriptures. But the most compelling arguments, I think, come not from archaeology but from Scripture itself the testimony of those who were there, those who saw the empty tomb, those who saw the uh, resurrected Jesus, and those who, because of that, were willing to spend the rest of their days proclaiming a Savior who is alive, uh, one who had changed their lives, and one for whom, far from being ashamed or feeling tricked or deceived or misled, were willing to give their lives in testimony to what they recognized was the absolute truth in everything that he said and did. And that's their point here. And in fact, the role he's fulfilling. We are his witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. For one or two people, he might say, well, he's just having a delusion. But there were many, many more than that. Of course, you know Thomas, who also was skeptical. had missed out on the first appearance, that first day of the week, but then a week later was present when Jesus appeared to him, and he himself was convinced and, in fact, became one of the witnesses to the resurrected Christ. So Peter, having this opportunity, spoke to them about the life of Jesus, about the death of Jesus, about the resurrection of Jesus, things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 are of uh, utmost importance, those things that he passed on that he himself had received, this apostolic testimony to the life, death, resurrection of Christ. But then the fourth thing he speaks of here the, the, is the implication, the significance uh, of Jesus. Because he goes on to say in verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Up until this point, they could say, so what? Jesus lived. Jesus died, Jesus rose again, admittedly unusual, but so what? What does that have to do with me? Well, this is what it has to do with them, this is what it has to do with us. First, he acknowledges that Jesus is the one who sends his messengers. He commanded us to preach to the people. Remember when Jesus gave the Great Commission in in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, uh, make disciples of all nations, go, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them. But before Jesus said that, he said in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me as a result of his life, death, and resurrection. Therefore, go, making disciples of all nations. You see, the apostles went out under Jesus' authority, and Jesus himself had authority 
as the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, because of he one, because of who he was as God, but also because through his death and resurrection, he has won back from Satan those who belong to the Lord. So Christ is the sender of his messengers. He's a judge of all people. Verse 42, to testify that he is the one, Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. What does this have to do with us? Well, this same Jesus is the one whom the Father has appointed at the last day to be judge of the living and the dead. That is to say, all people who are alive when he returns, who have died, uh, he is the judge. He is the one to whom we are accountable. But not only is he the sender, not only is he the judge, but the significance for us is that he is the Savior. Uh, We see this in 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's what we need. If we are going to withstand the judgment of the judge, we need our sins forgiven. We need to be pardoned. We need to be clothed in righteousness, not in the sins that by ourselves we're we're clothed in. And so he says everyone who believes in him. That doesn't just mean who acknowledges that he existed. To believe in him doesn't mean merely to acknowledge that what the Bible says about him is true. But it means that we completely without reservation, trust in him and in his finished work alone to enable us to be right with God. That by trusting in him, our our sins are forgiven, those sins for which he died on Calvary's cross. And so that's what Peter is saying here to them. There's no so what. Well, he can ask the question, so what? But there's an answer to that as we find it here. That Jesus is the one who sent his messengers out to bring them this message. It's under his authority. That Jesus is the one who one day will judge the living and the dead. But in the meantime, Jesus is also the one they are to preach as the Savior of all who believe. In our church, when children, particularly when covenant children of the church, come to meet with our elders to become communing members of the church, one of the questions that I like to ask them, actually several questions, is who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? And what does that have to do with you? It's interesting that those are the very questions that Peter implicitly raises and answers. Who is Jesus? What did he do? And what does he have to do with me? There are no greater questions that can be raised. There are no more significant questions that we can answer than those questions. Now, one of the concerns with the children or adults who come before the elders to become members of this church is that they're able to answer those questions accurately, that they know something about who Jesus is, there's something about what Jesus did, and that they're able to explain what that has to do with them. But more importantly for them, more importantly for you, than being able to answer the questions accurately is to have experienced the truth of those answers in your heart. And in fact, that's what happened here. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, that is Jews, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. 
And so, verse 48, Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, that was a case where they knew now and understood the answers to the questions, but more than that, they had experienced the reality behind those answers. How is it with you? Is this mere information to you? Or is this a life-changing transformation to you? To know who Jesus is, the Son of God who came into the world. To know what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection. But most importantly, to know what that has to do with you. Scriptures tell us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so on this Easter, may it not be merely understanding in the head but new life in the heart that causes us to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, no one was ever saved by knowledge alone, and yet we need accurate knowledge. Lord, we thank you for how Peter provides that accurate knowledge about Jesus here in this passage. And I pray for myself, for my family, and for those who hear me today that these would be more than facts, but they would be beloved and life-changing truths, affecting not only the mind, but giving life to the heart. As we believe in the Lord Jesus and are saved, we pray it in his risen name. Amen.